Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Howdy, howdy. It's an exciting day. We're going to my favorite state. <laughs> we are, and we're cozying up by the fire. We call these fireside chats. Yes, we're so excited. We're not only just having a philanthropist, we're having like an amazing entrepreneur, an amazing mind, and a big heart today. And a good human. Yeah, yeah this is going to be great. So we're talking to Matt Larson today. He's probably been impacted by the different projects that he's involved in. He was a millionaire in his 20s, which I can't even... Read that sentence without being like, oh my gosh, what was that like? A multimillionaire in his 30s, he sold his company, Confio Software, for over $100 million before the age of 40. And after his sale of his company, he dealt with the emotional conflicts that exiting founders experience. Um, To resolve this, he sought to use life and make an impact. So he worked with his wife to create a mathematical model to determine how he could best impact the world. Just on his free time. Right? <laughs> he was doing <laughs> we all deal in different time. ways, but Matt <laughs> deals in numbers, right? And he is a genius. So since then, he has created the Happy Child app led by his nonprofit company, The Human Improvement Project. If you don't know it, it's the number one parenting app in the world. Um, so, so much there to unpack. But he and his wife, Melanie, are just powerhouses. They have their own nonprofit in Colorado that focuses on reducing the incidence of child sex abuse. But Matt, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, you know, we would love to just kind of, you kind of fill in some of the dots. I shared some of the highlights of your journey, um, but I would love to hear, you know, what brought you to this place today and just kind of fill in some of the personal pieces of that. Sure. So in the starting maybe 15 years ago, my wife uh, and I started a foundation after I had sold part of a software company. And like you, you discussed, basically, I come from an engineering background. And so we decided to use a formula to do this, to, to decide what we were going to actually use the money in this, this foundation for. So the formula had three parts. Um, it had, and, and by the way, Uh, we focused on kids in the United States. I I can't remember exactly why we decided to do whatever was the most important thing for those kids. But so we used this formula to try to decide that. And the formula was how many kids does it affect? How much pain does it cause those children? And how long does the pain last? And we put in just about everything into that formula you can imagine. Childhood diseases and broken bones and drowning and just everything that we could think of. And At the time, what came out of that formula was uh, child sexual abuse. It affected uh, one in three girls and one in four, I'm sorry, one in five boys, according to the the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. And so we didn't know anything about that, but we said, okay, that's what we're going to use this money for. And so we ended up hiring a bunch of experts and and then kind of looked at it and said, okay, now that we think we're working on the biggest issue, uh, by the way, spoiler alert, we weren't, um, we were pretty close, but we, we've later discovered, you know, what is the biggest issue, but, but we said, okay, we, we think we're on the biggest issue now. What's the biggest thing that we can do to address that issue? So we focused on, you know, all these experts and what we eventually found out was that the biggest checkbook in the world is the federal government. 
and that that really was the the path that that we should go. So it was a little ironic because we had just put a bunch of money into a foundation, and then what they basically told us is you can't use your foundation money for that. You have to fund lobbying personally. And we said, okay, well that's fine. So we did that, and we started hiring lobbyists, and it was really a bizarre situation because I think it was something like six or nine months after we started hiring uh, you know these lobbyists were standing in the rose garden of the white house and we've got you know the president was president uh, george w bush at the time on one side and we're shaking hands with uh, the senate majority leader at the time who had helped us on this bill and we passed this really uh, significant bill uh, and then it turned out that that was the first step once you pass a bill it's a little confusing, but you pass the bill to first say it's okay to spend this money and then you actually have to go get the money. So it took us a little more time, maybe another year to do that. But by the end of it, we um, had what is now at least 300 million in spending on this issue. It's, I don't know, I haven't followed all the details. It's probably closer to 500 million at this point. But essentially every year we, through this bill, uh, something like 12,000 um, suspected pedophiles get arrested. And so statistically in the next hour, three will be arrested um, by, the, by the US Marshals. And essentially what our bill did is we funded a bunch of US Marshals to go get them. And we funded a bunch of uh, prosecutors to go get them. And so that ended up you know, being maybe one of the most significant things that's affected uh, you know, child exploitation in the United States uh, in, in quite some time. And so we had, you know, we had done all that and had been, you know, sort of, we didn't think it would actually go that well, but it ended up, you know, going really well. Um, and, uh, and then, then I ended up selling a software company that I was running, like, that, like you talked about. And that, you know, we can get kind of get more into that, but I had always sort of been under this assumption that I think a lot of Americans are that, that even though we know money doesn't buy happiness, that we kind of think maybe money does buy happiness and, you know, in the background or success or something and uh, ended up selling a software company and then realizing very quickly that even though I felt like I, you know, achieved a lot of these goals that I set out for myself that I, that I really didn't. Wow. I mean, here's the reality about our, our new friend, Matt here is he is our first guest that we've ever had on that is a member of Mensa. So the brain power of Matt is very high. And I think the story that I love the most, or at least the thematic piece is there are a lot of people out there. Well, maybe not a lot, but a handful of people who would sell a company and, and maybe give, give a portion of that away. You didn't just give a portion of it away. You took it created this massive movement and then you use this brain power to sort of find ways to tap into the science of how can we improve the world. And I love that you just honed in on this one particular issue that really touched you and your wife's hearts, because I do think that, you know, brilliant philanthropists will throw so much more of themselves into an organization or into a mission if it's deeply personal. And I can just tell the way that you're talking about this, that this is deeply personal to you. So I, I'm sorry, I'm a high feeler, which probably doesn't jive, you know, with <laughs> someone such a high thinker. But I want to know, how does that feel to you when you get that bill passed, when you get that funding secured, when you see that there are marshals and DAs that are going around and creating um, a healthier and safer world for our kids. Like talk about that moment for you and how that felt. 
you know, sometimes they say that, you know, you can peak too early, right? You kind of hear about athletes doing that and so on. <laughs> and I got to tell you, like, you know, walking into the White House and, you know, all that sort of stuff, you definitely had this feeling, my wife and I, like, wow, is it all downhill from here? Like, I, <laughs> so in some ways it was a little like, oh, this, this could be that. Like, you know, it's not, I'm not quite sure, you know, kind of what happens after that. But what really was, I think, touching in sort of good ways and in some really difficult ways is that people would would obviously come up and, and talk to me and open up about these things that in some cases, you know, according to them, they had never told anyone before. And, it, you know, it's it's in some ways really heartbreaking um, to, to hear, you know, these stories. I remember, you know, one um, lady who was uh, in her 60s said um, that, uh, sorry, getting choked up now thinking about it, but that she um, uh, thought about it every hour of every day. And I remember just thinking, that's unbelievable. I I, I just couldn't imagine that, you know, throughout this, you know, this long life that, um, you know, that this had such a big impact on her. And so we, you know, I've sort of heard stories, you know, over stories, and some of them are just horrifying. I, you know, for example, um, have worked really closely with uh, Ernie Allen, who was the head of the Center for the Missing and Exploited Children for a very long time, maybe 20 years. He retired a few years ago. And some of the, the you know, the, the issues that you're dealing with in there are, are really about as heavy of issues you're going to, you know, you're going to get to. So, um, and, you know, actually we, it's one of those things where it's, it's not sort of a, a dinner a party conversation, right? Nobody wants to hear, you know, if they ask about, if somehow it comes up with that, they change the subject pretty quick, pretty quickly because it's a it's a very difficult subject. So, um, in some ways, it's been actually tough, but um, but we would absolutely do it again. You know, again, we really believe in focusing on the things that will make the biggest difference. And and mathematically, that at the time, uh, we were confident that that was, if not the number one thing, it was in the top five. And I think that's probably is in the top five. I still agree with that, but. We've now found, you know, some things that that we're confident are related to that, but actually uh, much more important. Well, I mean, just responding to that, I think it is inspiring to see that you had achieved such heights of success professionally and channeled that, you know, pent up energy to to continue making a difference into something so meaningful and to see how it um, strikes you still, I think is just really inspiring to to everybody. So thank you for sharing that, Matt. Um, could you kind of connect the dots for the human improvement project? Is that kind of the genesis of this or is this a different part of the story um, for what it looks like today? So it's a little bit uh, of, of a different part of the story, but I, I would say, you know, our nonprofit has sort of gone through two phases. And so, and the human improvement project is really the second one. So after I had sold this software company and kind of went into a, a bit of a depression and, and, uh, and so on, it was actually a difficult time, even though I thought it would actually be a great time. I was walking with a person who be, became the co-founder of the human improvement project. And we basically asked the question, what's the most important thing that I, Matt, could do to improve my long-term well-being and that of my families. And I said, you know, I don't know what that is. And, and I asked him, do you know what, the, you know what that is? And he said, I don't know what that is. And I thought, that's kind of strange that we don't know what the most important thing is. And so what we ended up deciding to do was to um, fund a clinical trial where we had participants on one side 
And then we have a whole slew of experts on the others. So psychologists and psychiatrists and nutritionists and fitness experts and a bunch more that I'm you know, forgetting right now. And we basically would go to the experts and we'd say, okay, tell us what questions you want us to ask the participant. Let's call her Sally, for, you know, the, one of them, Sally. And they would give us a whole list of questions. And we'd go ask you know, Sally those questions. And we'd take her answers back to the experts and say, now what follow-up questions do you have? We'd go back and forth, back and forth until finally the experts said, we think we have what we need. We think this is Sally's number one issue and this is that she should work on. This is the number two issue and so on. Well, the thing that really shocked us was that all of our participants had one of two issues at the top, and we weren't aware of either one of those. So we basically went and started talking to all these academics, and, and pretty quickly one of them said, oh, you guys just rediscovered what Harvard and the CDC um, discovered really not that long ago, and by the way, these two issues that you guys rediscovered are basically the fundamentals of what is, is difficult, you know, of a lot of society's problems. So uh, it's, these are the primary reasons, you know, for criminal behavior. They're the primary reasons for drug and alcohol addiction. Hospitals are full of, of people with these two, you know, particular issues. And we were stunned. We were like, is this, you've got to be kidding me. There's these two issues that, you guys in the academic community know about, and yet the public basically has no idea. Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. What are the, the two, what are the two um, defining variables? What are those two, and, and how are you combating that? Well, they're both hormones in the body, and uh, the first one is cortisol, but I want to be uh, be really clear that their cortisol is used for all sorts of things in our body, good and bad and so on. And we're not talking about all forms of cortisol. We're talking about cortisol in one very specific situation. And that is when cortisol levels are raised because a person is nervous that something's about to happen that will cause their emotions to suddenly plummet. And there's a lot of things in this category, but um, a really common one, and this happened in, in my family, is that a parent is, um, let's say, uh, sarcastic or critical once a month. And so even though the rest of the time they might be very loving and say nice things, once a month they emotionally ambush their child with, with some statement. Well, it turns out that might be enough that that child has these elevated cortisol levels because they're nervous that that will happen the whole month, the whole time that they're around the parent. And when I learned this, I went and I talked to my three kids, probably, you know, understandably. And uh, so I have an older son who I asked because we banter back and forth quite a bit. I said, hey, is that, do you ever feel nervous like this that I'm going to say this? And he said, no, you know, this, that's basically part of our relationship. I know I think it's a good time. We, we have a good time doing it. I talked to my younger son and he said, oh, all the time, dad, I'm always nervous that you're going to say something like that. And it just crushed me. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that I was, you know, the, in these very rare moments was essentially causing these elevated cortisol levels that I now knew were, you know, highly predicted. Now, thankfully, all of this stuff can be turned around very quickly. And, you know, it has been in his case. Okay. So what is the second one? So the second one is another hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin, again, like cortisol, has all sorts of what you could consider good and bad uses you know, inside of our bodies. But we call it the long-term happiness chemical in a very specific situation. And that is when it is released inside of safe relationships. 
So when we look at activities where oxytocin was released in safe uh, relationships, that's the second big predictor. We can basically just you know, look at oxytocin and safe relationships and cortisol because you're nervous, uh, something's gonna make your emotions plummet. And those seem to be the big predictors. Hey friends, taking a quick pause from today's episode to say that we just love to connect with you. And the best way to do so is to join the good community. It's free. Just head on over to weareforgood.com slash hello, and we can connect with all the resources, tips, tools, and show notes to help you do more for your mission. We can't wait to get to know you. Now, let's get back to this awesome feel-good conversation. We were talking about this through the bent of children, but I have to tell you while you've been talking, I've been thinking, wouldn't this work in any sort of hierarchical environment? Like when I think about like someone in a workplace where you have a boss, like when I think about the cortisol, if your boss is very critical to you once a month, but maybe like even I think about a review, you're having your annual review and you hear all of this wonderful everything, but that one negative thing comes into our mind and just plummets us and shatters us. You know, is this applicable for any group of individual who is looking for connection, humanity, um, and wherever their community is, whether it's at work, home, volunteering? Yeah, what we teach in our apps are apply to every relationship. People will say that constantly. They'll say, why, you know, why does this look like a parenting app? for one of ours, why does this look a relationship app for the other ones? This is for every, uh, every relationship. And they are correct. That is the case. We've decided to sort of focus on uh, this more and romantic relationships, but they're, but they're absolutely correct. Google did a a famous study a few years ago before all this uh, was, was quite as obvious as it is now, but it was really a hint on it. And they basically found out that the groups that were most successful uh, in, were groups where they felt emotionally safe with their other members. They didn't have somebody who would, you know, make fun of their idea or something like that. They thought it would be, well, the, the, probably the highest performing groups will be the people that are the smartest or that get paid the most, but it, it turned out to be the ones that had the most emotional safety. You know, when they talk about you don't quit a company, you quit your boss, it's probably in, in the decent part because that boss does emotionally ambush you rather than just you know, giving necessary, but in some cases, some negative feedback, they may just sort of snipe at you a little bit. And so I think that's you know, a common reason why uh, some people might leave their work as, as, a, as a supervisor like that. I love that you've positioned your life you know, to chase this, I don't know if I want to call it a cause, but just this rallying around improving parents, family relationships, this dynamic. What's your advice for somebody that's a young professional, they're in their career, but they also have something that's burning, you know, within them that they want to do more, they want to help in some way. What's some ways that you could encourage somebody to pivot to chase that? One of the things that I think is most important is to make sure that you're working on the right thing. So inside of this, this applies inside the business world and the nonprofit world. What it appears is that if you look at If you look at how much effort somebody takes into, let's say, starting a nonprofit uh, or starting a business and then actually executing it, right, doing all this stuff as they start trying to run it, maybe 1% of their time is choosing the right nonprofit or business to start. And then 99% of their time is then working on it, right, doing all the things to try to get it to be successful. And I believe that that ratio is way off that it makes a lot more sense to spend 
far more time making sure you're working on the right thing. And so I, I sort of think of it as um, strategy and tactics. So strategy is sort of, yeah, what business are we going to start here, for example, or what nonprofit are we going to start? That needs a lot of, of, of work. You really need to make sure that you're working on, on the right thing. And often, I think the best way to do that is to try to have some sort of ranking of what are the things that will make the biggest difference in whatever area you're interested in. So if you say, okay, well, what's going to make the biggest difference in this area of, let's say, the nonprofit world that I'm interested in, and you spend a, a decent amount of time really getting that list of what's number one and what's number two, what's number three, you might decide that you don't want to work on number one. For whatever reason, it doesn't interest you. It doesn't fit your area of expertise. But if you start at the top and then say, well, I don't want to work on number two either, but I, I do want to work on number three. That one, I think, is obviously it's close to the top of the list. And I'm excited about it. It maybe matches my skill set. Now, suddenly you're working on the biggest thing that you really should be working on. And instead, what people tend to do is just have random ideas. And if they actually ranked those in terms of what's going to have impact, the idea that got them excited might be number 197 on the list. But hey, they're excited about that for whatever reason. And so they then get to work on 197. And they, they struggle. There's, you know, because... Um, you know, other people may not really care about it or because it, it, it doesn't really seem to make that big of an impact. And they're competing against nonprofits that are working on number three or number four or number five. Like, I can't get funding. I don't understand. Well, you know, unfortunately, it was because what you're working on is pretty low on the list. And so you're just bound to have all sorts of frustrating issues. And you keep trying to find ways of how do I sell that 197 is really in the top 10 so that I can raise money, but it's, it's hard because it really isn't, it really isn't that. So from a strategy perspective, it's really spending enough time making sure you're working on the right thing more so than we do by default on the tactical side. Once you figure out the correct strategy, then I, I sort of go the other way, which is that you want a, a large series of experiments so I don't care as much. I don't want, I don't need to just have that my experiment worked. I need a large number of them because I know only one out of 10 is really going to work. And I know one out of a hundred is going to go gangbusters. Well, if I don't do those hundred experiments, I'm never going to find that one that goes gangbusters. So you don't want to be af afraid to fail when you're talking about the, the, the tactics that you're going to use in your nonprofit, let's say, to get to get that word out or in a for-profit business, um, you want to be, you want to embrace failure you, in that particular case. You really want to say, hey, if this looks like a good idea, I'm not going to spend all my money on it, but I'm going to have a, I'm going to spread my bets over a large number of experiments and then keep funding the winners and keep doing uh, new experiments going forward. I feel like Matt needs a TEDx stage. It's so nice that, you know, that you're able to take this very complex data and um, analysis and be able to distill it down in a way that the average human can understand and make it applicable in their life. I think that's really, really helpful. And I have to give a plug for the Happy Child app Um I, I really encourage everyone to go and download this because even the way that it intuitively walks you through where you are with your kids right now and 
what issues you're experiencing at home, whether they are known to you or unknown to you. It, I feel like the app kind of gently walks you through where you need to be placing your energy. And I just think it's a good lesson anytime, but especially right now as, you know, our kids are trying to endure this very weird time of COVID as we are. Um, I just think there's a lot of really great helpful tips there. So I wanted to make sure that I plug that the other thing is, I, I we like to ask each of our guests if there's a moment of philanthropy that they've witnessed that just resonated with them. Um, and I wonder if that could be as a part of the mission of what you're starting here um, with the Human Improvement Project, or if it's with your wife and your nonprofit, Guardians of Angels in Denver, or just something that you've given to personally. What's What's a story that has stuck out to you that really affected you and has stayed with you? Well, I'd say there's almost two categories. So one is when we get uh, reviews on our app and, you know, our apps have, you know, 10,000 plus reviews. Um, the, the ones that sort of hit me the hardest are the, are the ones where they get into specifics. So it's really common for people to say this is life changing as it should be, because that's what we set out to find, right? What are the things that are most life changing? Um, and so we'll get a, a lot of those, but when people like somebody this week uh, uh, wrote in an email that, you know, basically said, Hey, I've been using the app for six months and it's, it's totally, you know, turned my marriage around and my relationship with my kids and, and so on. And they you know, got into a lot of specific details on that. Those, you know, really, you know, hit home, right. You kind of really, you know, imagine sort of what life could have looked like for that family had they kept going on that track and, you know, hopefully what, you know, what it looks like going forward. So that, that's probably one category. And then, but the moment I think, you know, that I think I touched on a little bit earlier was when we had those discussions about these, the, those two issues that we found, the, the oxytocin and the cortisol, and found out that, you know, we walked through all of those things about how, you know, this is where, this is basically where homelessness comes from. This is where, you know, criminal behavior comes from. This is, you know, the, the fact that the hospitals are full of people with high cortisol and low oxytocin, that just blew my mind. And that, that this, there was, you know, so many of these societal problems that could be fixed just with these issues and that we just didn't know about them. Uh, that, I, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever get past that because I just can't imagine I'm going to reach a point again in my life where I see an opportunity this big for fundamentally changing society. I mean, basically what I think is just like how we look back at generations from, let's say, you know, 200 years ago, and we go, man, I would not want to, you know, live there. I wouldn't want to live there for all sorts of reasons. They don't have AC and, you know, eat, you know little things like that. But, um, you know, or how, you know, women or minorities were treated. There's just all sorts. But we can't, we don't really think about how are people going to look back at us and say they, why they wouldn't want to live during this time. And I think that's what's going to happen. They're going to look back and go, wow, the way they treated each other um, and, you know, how they had these, you know, huge numbers of people with anxiety and depression and, and so on. Man, I'm glad I don't live, I, I didn't have to live in 2020. Man, I'm glad it's, you know, 2060 now. So I think that to me, you know, is, a, is just a real, that was a really critical, uh, you know, moment that I'll never forget. And what a beautiful vision for the future too. I, I mean, know. we talk, we always ask, we often ask that of, you know, what's your dream for the future? And I love that you just painted that without even having to go there. Talk to me about someone who has inspired you. 
one person who I think I really look up to from a from a nonprofit perspective is Bill Gates. I'm probably not the the only you know one doing that, but but I've looked up to him for a long time because I think he you know realized he had some ability to be really successful in business, but then decided to really shift that and focus on things that can really help people. And so back when I was running a business, for example, I as I would talk to to my employees about what's the purpose of what we're doing. I would explain that we're not just here. This was a software company. We're not just here to all become wealthy. That may end up be, you know, being a side effect of this. But I am going to use this money in a similar way to, you know, to how Bill Gates has used his wealth to, you know, to help the world. I'm going to do the same thing. And I that would, so he was a model that I really put up. And I, I just, I just really admire the work that he does. I think he puts himself out there, and I, and even, you know, helps you know, a large number of people who really can be quite critical of what he's trying to do. And I, I just, I admire the fact that he is mature enough to not worry about that and just say, I'm going to, you know, continue to help people regardless. And I think he's working on, you know, absolutely huge issues. I think, you know, hundreds of millions of lives will likely eventually be saved because of the work that he's done. So he's, he's certainly an individual that I, probably the individual that I've most looked up to from a philanthropic perspective. Can you imagine the brain trust is if you put a hundred type Bill Gates and Matt Larson's together who can digest <laughs> dense um, data right. and You've use that sanitation. to solve. Yeah, You've sanitation got- <laughs> over here. I'd love got- to be a fly on the wall. In oh room. my gosh, it would just be extraordinary. We need to figure out a way to make that happen. Warren Buffett, are you listening? <laughs> Is that something you feel in your 90-year-old body you could make happen and pull these brain trusts together? It would be extraordinary. We're for good brain trust yep. launching <laughs> I love that. 2022. Um, Matt, you're, you got so much wisdom just oozing out of you. What's one good thing? It's one, something we ask all of our guests, something, a piece of advice that you could leave us with. You know, I would say probably the, the, the importance of deep bonds. As a society, we do not understand the science of how to build deep bonds. They're very random. So when you look at a, an individual, let's say a parent and a child, statistically, the odds are they will, without training, they will not have a deep bond when that child is an adult. So the parent won't have a deep bond with that adult child. And we now know what the science of that is. We know how to purposefully build deep bonds and our apps cover all of that. I know we don't have time to get into that today, but I think you know, parents in particular having this goal, realizing that your responsibility is to build a deep bond with your child from just a science perspective, that's a key responsibility. And that doesn't mean you don't parent them. You know, we can get into those specifics, you know, the difference between those later, but the, the concept of that being a goal with our child is that, do, you know, do I have a deep bond with this child and how do I go about that? I think is really critical. So Matt, how can folks connect with you guys? How can they connect with the human improvement project? Obviously the apps and all the app stores. Could you point us to where y'all are at online? Sure. So our, our website is humanimprovement.org. You can go to our website or the app store. That's really the, the most effective way because you get daily uh, reminders that really help uh, this, the positive behavioral change that you'll need to improve your long-term well-being and, and that of your family. That's so wonderful. What a and noble if, mission. Yeah. And if you, we always talk about the long game on and subscribing to the long game on this podcast. And this is 
um, an investment now, which is really just your time. It, it costs nothing that can pay dividends with your relationships um, forever. So I just really appreciate this conversation. It's got me thinking so much about my own personal relationships. And um, I just want to wish you so much uh, goodness and wish you well, because I think you're, you've really put something extraordinary in the world that is going to create not only just some healing, but it's going to create these tighter bonds. And what we know is community is everything. And if we can encircle each other in love and light, um, and when we can glove up, (laughs) mask up, whatever it is to, to actually reach out and touch each other and just say you matter and your connection to me matters. I really think it creates such a, a more, uh, wholesome world and just, um, a more vibrant life for all of us. So thank you for your important work. Thank you for pouring your mind and your philanthropy into it. It's something that's going to benefit everyone. Appreciate you. Yeah, we appreciate you. Matt. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And I really appreciate you guys having me on so that I can kind of help get the word out. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you felt inspired by Matt's vision to bring the science of emotional well-being to your people, leading to stronger bonds. So go out and share some socially distanced oxytocin today. Did you know every week we share our best roundup of content, freebies, and notes heard on each episode? Head over to weareforgood.com backslash hello to join our mailing list, and you'll hear from us weekly with resources and tips to help you do more for your mission. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a rating and review? Your visible support of this podcast helps other people find us and join the good community. Thanks. Our production hero is a pro at bringing good juju to the world, Julie Confer. Hey. Our theme song is Sunray. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.